0: So,
1: please welcome Tom Johnson, who will talk about publishing API documentation. Thanks for hosting this event, and thanks for inviting me to speak. Um, I'm, I'm excited to see so many people out here uh, about this, coming to learn about this topic, because it's one that uh, I'm passionate about, I love the API doc space, it's interesting, it's, it's uh, unlike nothing before, um, it's a difficult space to navigate, particularly when it comes to tools. And that's what uh, kind of we're gonna be focusing on today. So here's a brief overview of what, we're, what we'll talk about. What makes developer doc unique? We're gonna look at some doc design patterns, some docs as code characteristics, markdown and version control, REST APIs and the open API spec, the jungle of publishing tools and some lessons learned. So it's kind of cutting a, a broad uh, path through this space, and and uh, I sort of realized in hindsight how much I was trying to tackle with this topic. Um, so we'll see how it goes. Um, if you wanna if you want to find out more information, this is the documenting APIs course that I have. If you go to I'd ratherbewriting.com/slash API doc. I've got a whole section on publishing your API documentation. If you wanted to back up and start at the beginning, you know, what is an API, uh, what are the essential sections to document, that's covered in other parts of the course. This is the publishing aspect. We assume that you've, you've written documentation, or you've, you've got you know, an API, and you've, you've sort of made your way through the endpoints, and now you want to somehow present all this documentation to the world. How are you going to do that? So that's what I'm going to try to cover here. And all these different sections are my, uh, if you go online and you read them, they're my attempt to kind of work through that, that path. And part of, the re- part of the appeal to present on this is that it helps me refine this. Uh, presenting on a topic forces you to kind of figure out if you understand it or not <laughs> in, a, in a more immediate way. <laughs> all right. First, let me clarify API docs versus developer docs, because I don't want to mislead you about what we're going to cover. Um, All API docs are in the developer doc kind of domain, but not all developer docs have an API. A lot of them do. Most of them do, which is why I just sort of titled this publishing API docs, because I assume you have some kind of API associated with all other (coughs) kind of developer code frameworks and so forth. but when we, when we look at API documentation specifically, people tend to gravitate towards the reference information. Uh, but it also contains a lot of non reference content. Um, the tools in this space are mind boggling. They, they so, there are so many tools, um, it's hard to even understand. It's, it's a renaissance of tools in the developer space. For years, there was just Javadoc and Doxygen, and they had you know, a smattering of document generators that could build from the source. And in the last decade, there are hundreds, I'm not exaggerating, hundreds of tools for all kinds of different needs, code <coughs> frameworks, platforms, um, and I'm gonna try to navigate through that space later. Um, and there is a huge gap in this area. Uh, we have API reference information often generated from tools like or or specifications, like the open API, and we have non-reference, and the two don't always mix so well in terms of uh, publishing tools. All right, so first question, why not just use traditional help authoring tools, or hats, right? This is uh, the, the first question you have to ask if you come from a traditional tech writing background, and you perhaps have used other tools that are uh, specialized for tech com scenarios that handle single source single sourcing multiple outputs translation workflows you know include search and content reuse why not just use all those tools They're, they've been evolving for the last thirty years or more um, well here are some of the reasons why the developer doc space tends to not use traditional hats as much the primary reason is that we have developers as authors, or contributors. And developers as authors want to use developer workflows and tools. This means they they want to use, they want to treat the docs like code. They want to manage it in Git. They want to read it in their IDE. They want to check it into uh, their their source control and build from the server. They want to manage it like code, and the traditional hats don't really have that sort of framework. If you try to take a, a binary file uh, that's you know, only computer-readable and put it into source control and try to see diffs, it, it's not going to work. Um, another characteristic in this space is that you have API APIs that have specific structure and templates. There's predictable sections to an API. You've got your parameters and your sample responses and your sample requests. Um, and and these templates need to be somehow formalized um, in the documentation so that that sort of element isn't so present in the hat world another major characteristic is that developers want to demo requests right on the page you know here's how you make a call click the button and try it out and you can see you know in, in real time the request happening and finally in API documentation worlds the product. Uh, there's no GUI usually that people navigate to learn about your code. They they look at the docs as kind of the product interface, and as such, there's a lot more attention, uh, more more pressure for that product interface, which is the docs, to look better to sell. And if you have kind of this old tripane sort of look that you know uh, kind of echoes from the 90s, it doesn't really go over so well. So, that's sort of the reasons why traditional hats tend to not play so prominently in this space. Now, because of that, there are serious challenges that are hard to overcome. Um, and I'll get into those a little bit later. Uh, Chuck. Are you
0: taking questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: throw um, up questions.
0: I'm, I'm inferring for what you're doing. This is a lot, has to do a lot with open web APIs. For APIs for libraries in more closed systems, where you have closed systems talk to each other, but you require the APIs and API docs for those systems, do people who are reading those types of documentations do the same interaction with that content?
1: Yeah. So actually, you bring up a good point that I didn't clarify. Uh, what do I even mean by API? right? Because you've got Java library APIs, or other you know, library-based APIs that aren't web-based APIs. I'm mainly talking about web-based APIs here. Traditionally, uh, the Java APIs are still documented with Javadoc, it's just kind of how it's done. So yeah, when I talk about APIs, just assume I'm mostly referring to web APIs. There's other types of APIs, right? People talk about Android as like APIs for every method, so that's sort of a different ball of wax. (laughs) All right, so I want to begin somewhat descriptively, and mm, all right, we'll see how this works. Uh, You know, instead of just coming out and saying, hey, these are the characteristics of developer doc sites, I want you to, oh, you know what? I didn't realize this, everybody doesn't have a computer. (laughs) Okay, you know what? <laughs> you could do this later. We won't, we won't do this now. I, I, I sort of structured this, this uh, content as a workshop, right? And what I usually do is have people kind of click around on a list of you know, 100 different APIs, find three, and try to identify what are the common characteristics that these show. Um, and if you were to, to sort of identify commonalities across lots of different API doc sites, you, you would see some of these design patterns. They have very defined structure and templates. I, I already mentioned this, right? When you've got the API reference content, it follows a specific order. And that is the core characteristic that all API docs share in the web API space. They're usually delivered on a website platform. Hand in the back, yeah? Yeah, we'll see. Do you want me to load one?
0: Okay.
1: We're going to try that. <coughs> All right, so... is it really look that small on here? <laughs> Let me try some. All right, well... So, let's look at... How about this one? Box API docs. All right. So one of the one of the characteristics is that they have these common. Uh, you know, this is kind of an obvious point, but oops, I didn't actually mean to go to that one. Let me uh back back up. Go to the which one?
0: No, no, no.
1: Okay. So they've got these common sections in an API. You've got a curl example. You've got, uh, and you know what? I'm probably not finding a good one here. But basically, if you were to, if you were to look at you know, the API reference part, you would see very common sections. They, it's going gonna, it's gonna to start out with a description, followed by here the parameters, followed by here's a sample request, and here's a sample response, and here's a description of that response. You'll also notice that it's on a website platform, right? It's it looks like a website. It's not. It doesn't look like a, a little standalone microsite with tripane Help. Um, the pages tend to be long. This one sort of defies descript, d- defies the the standard, but by and large, the pages in developer docs are long. Developers they don't like to click around. They kind of like the single page model almost. So you'll see a lot of a lot of APIs where all the endpoints are on the same page. And with sophisticated navigation, you can jump down to the one you want. Um, yeah. Uh, let me jump back here, see what other characteristics. API interactivity. Um, the, I'll show this a little bit later, but the, the interactivity I'm talking about is the try it out feature with requests where you can uh, kick off a request right there and see, see the result. Okay, sorry, I, I, that was, a, that was a, a strong ask for me to pick one, one of those sites that would <laughs> demonstrate all five. But trust me, you see this. Abundant code samples is another. Um, they, they literally have lots of code samples. They're, they're, they're structured in a way that uh, they have syntax highlighting. They're formatted in a readable way. They're all over the place. Uh, so you, you see that as a common pattern. All right. Um, Another con, now I'm just talking about general characteristics in this space. Developers like to treat docs as code. Uh, are you going
0: to uh, send those uh, slides over later? Oh,
1: slides? you can just go online at, at ratherbewriting.com slash publishing dash API dash docs. Yeah. And I'll post it, I'll put a post with the link. But yeah. Um, and the recording will be available too. What does it mean to? treat docs like code. This is a topic that's sort of uh, been written about a lot, so I'm assuming most people are familiar, but if not, it kind of has these characteristics. You write in a a format such as markdown, restructured text, something that's human readable even in in the shape of code. You don't have a bunch of markup tags that are making it difficult to read um, in in a regular IDE-like text editor, right? you want to open up in something like Atom, or maybe they're using uh, uh, one of the IDEA IDEs. Um, a lot of times they use static site generators to build the documentation. We'll jump into that later. Exactly what is a static site generator? It kind of loops, it, it compiles your code and generates out a website. It can run different processes to package, informa- package content into layouts can run scripts it can do other kind of fancy stuff and then gives you a website that you deploy um, they use Git to manage their content so if you have 30 people working on a doc solution you've got uh, it's the same Git workflows with branching merging and pulling and pushing and forking and all that stuff um, so th- this is something I'm going to jump into a little bit more in a minute, but uh, the, the git side can even be more um, complex than than the static site generator. And mm-hmm. finally, building from the server is another common characteristic of DOCSIS code. There's actually a whole book that Anne Gentle wrote on this, on DOCSIS code, so check it out if you're interested in diving more. But uh, that's kind of the basic characteristic that a lot of these sites follow. Joe.
0: Can you elaborate on what you mean by building?
1: Yeah, yeah, we'll jump into that more. Basically means you commit your code to the repository, your Git repository, and there's a listener in that repository that says, oh, time for me to build the site and push the files out to whatever um, uh, deployment location there is. So you you no longer have to upload files. I think uh, this is one of the key features I'm gonna dive into more, so I'll, I'll save some more comments on that in a minute. Markdown. Oh yes, oh, sure. Yeah so, uh, does, uh, does that work
0: with SVN as well as Git or just
1: Git? Oh yeah, no, it works with SVN. I, I just say Git to be more like immediate and concrete about a version control. It could be Mercurial, Git, and probably others that, that people might use. All right. Um okay. Markdown is often the pref- preferred syntax that people use with these tools. Um, could be restructured text as well, but Markdown is really more common. Um, and the reason is that it's, it's readable as code. You don't, have to, you don't have to buy an XML editor in order to kind of render the content readable at a glance. Um, it, it can be used with any sort of editor that you use. A lot of people use, use Atom. And I, I mentioned earlier that, that this format is compatible with version control. You really couldn't use a Word document, for example, check it into a, a Git repository and manage it that way. It, it, the binary files just don't work. Um, so, this excludes a lot of other stuff, but it, it sort of defines what they are going to use for their tools. A lot of people say, you know, why, why are you going to write in Markdown? This is the biggest question that I hear from tech writers moving into this space is, well, I couldn't do everything I need to do in Markdown. I-, I have complex reuse. I've got you know a lot of semantics tied into this. Markdown is way too primitive. It's uh, it's not going to work. Well, usually a uh, developer has, or an author, has a static site generator that has scripting language in it that can do more complex tasks. If you wanted to kind of loop through all documents get a certain property push it here you know sort and filter use a variable reuse snippets you would do that through whatever scripting language is available in your tool now that's problematic because then you you become more kind of married to that tool um, and it's harder to port which is why a lot of people say you shouldn't use markdown Um, it's too non-standard even without the scripting you've got Multi Markdown and Cramdown and GitHub flavored Markdown and original Markdown and other Markdown and like you start writing in that in that way and then you th- you, one day you think I'm gonna use another tool and suddenly you realize that you have to like adjust all of your content. So
0: it's also implementation specific. So as you move to a company, you've got to learn a new way of doing
1: it. Yeah. By and large, I think 80% of the Markdown syntax that people use is the same. It just just varies in some smallish ways. Um, If people want to define some content uh, semantically by this, I mean, let's say you have an intro blurb and you want to somehow mark it off as like, hey, this is my intro blurb summary, right? Markdown doesn't offer semantic tags. So what developers often do is they define that in some front matter at the top of a markdown document that that is often in YAML, which stands for uh, YAML ain't no markup language. So it's basically, uh, it's a syntax that is space sensitive with no angle brackets or markup tags. All right, so there's huge debates about markdown, uh, especially among like markdown versus RST restructured text or markdown versus you know XML, and it's one of these sensitive issues. But by and large, if you have developers who want to contribute and author, they're not going to write in XML. Um, they're not going to write in DITA. And the tools that are being developed for all these for all these scenarios, they're they're using markdown or or some other lightweight syntax. So you have to figure out exactly how to make that work for you. All right, the other another big Component of this developer doc experience is uh, is using Git, and it's sort of underestimated how revolutionary Git is. Um, it, it really is an ingenious way to collaborate. Uh, when you when you move away from traditional models of collaboration, where you might have checked a file into SharePoint and out, or used some other kind of you know syncing to Dropbox or something, uh, Git gives you lots of power to to branch and you know make content unique to a certain uh, feature and then merge it in or to merge other content in it it just works Um, and once you get used to it you you might think how did I ever live without this Um, I I really think it's it's one of the key selling points of moving into the developer doc landscape it also gives you an inside view of how the developers mind and workflow Kind of works uh, when you understand the, the Git branching, you can look at their code repositories and say, oh, "Let me see what was uh, what was committed, and let me see the let me compare the two different files, and let me um, let me do a branch, and I'll put my docs in here, and I'll submit a pull request, and they'll merge it in." Um, you can you can implement workflows, and you can work better with engineers when you understand how they work. Um, finally, the Git model really scales. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to you know, give another contributor a, a, a license for a seat into software so that they can then contribute into your private proprietary repository. They just, you know, you give them access and they can, they can be a contributor, they can submit a pull request. It works really well. Okay, building from the server is another very common characteristic. And this, this, uh, this feature is often called continuous delivery. If you've ever had to um, upload your files to a web server, you know what a pain this is, right? You, you build your content, you've got your, your HTML files, now you've got to you FTP them or you upload them somehow, and it's a, it's a pain. With continuous delivery, all you do is you commit your updates in Git or whatever version control you have, and there's a little listener sitting in the repository that says, oh, somebody just made a change in the production branch. Now I'm going to initiate a publishing pipeline to kick off a a build from the server. So if I have, for example, Jekyll, um, there's kind of like Jekyll installed on the server, and it builds it from there. And then uh, usually there's like a, what do we do with the built files? We push them onto some web host location. Um, Removes a ton of work from uploading content. Um, it allows you to focus on writing, and you can just make updates and, and not have to worry about how long the build is taking or other processes. And this, I, I think, this is really the killer feature. That that looking back, if I had to pick one thing that that stands out as the the best, it's it's continuous delivery. Um, all right, and finally. Uh, API reference content is very common in these. Um, A lot of times you will describe your API using something called an open API specification, which is just a standard way of describing the various elements in it. I won't dive too far into that, but uh, it it is the way that a lot of people document the reference part of an API. Um, If you think about how many different ways somebody could describe the elements in an API, you know, a parameter. Well, you've got a, a header parameter, a body request parameter, you've got query string parameters, and people might have like 10 different ways of, of naming this, and some people may uh, omit whether it's required or not. When you use this Open API specification, it sort of walks you through what the terminology is, how it should be structured, you can't just omit uh, some things that are essential. And so, um, this introduces another complexity in the tool landscape about, now that I've described my API with the open API, how do I parse, read and parse this spec document and integrate it into the rest of my documents, my, my documentation. And I'll talk more about that later. OK. So let me pause here for a minute. Went through a lot of different stuff. I was kind of just giving you a high-level overview of what makes this space unique, what are the core characteristics. Questions, comments that you want me to jump more into? Yes. Uh,
0: yep. Sorry. Uh, one quick comment I have is that with regards to the lengthy pages and reference docs, um, given how much more people spend, uh, how much more time people spend on mobile devices, they're uh, a little bit more used to just kind of this passive clicking. So scrolling isn't quite as hard as the process for uh, even the average
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, good point. Yeah, thanks. So just basically saying that our mobile devices is, have, have trained us to scroll. Joe?
0: I'd also say that developers are probably more used to scrolling through a very large piece of code. So yeah. they don't mind having,
1: yeah. having so,
0: to read through a whole bunch of stuff or skip around them on things to be able to stuff. But I was going to also point out that continuous delivery is also what developers use to build their own products. Mm-hmm. I mean, they use continuous delivery to build, test, and make something available. So first of all, they'll be used to it, and second of all, you can piggyback on their efforts to be able to publish your docs.
1: Good points, good points. Um, On the page link thing, interesting side note. I recently analyzed metrics from my site to see what the most popular posts were, most popular pages. The average is 1,600 words. I counted all the words, you know, um, and it aligns with a lot of arguments for long-form content. If you, if you, you know, Google what's the ideal length of a post or page, it's like 1,600 plus. Uh, people really like long content because they feel that it gives more value. And because it gives more value, they're more likely to share it and promote it and link to it. And when you share, promote, and link to it, it surfaces higher in Google's results. So it kind of feeds on its own visibility cycle. Uh, but yeah, y- you know, it's it's a, in sharp contrast to other information models that would chunk everything out into like, oh, this is just one little task. It's going to be its own topic because we want people people only want to see the information that they, relates to them, and so we're not going to put anything else on the page. That model doesn't it doesn't really align with content science or analytics. All right, um, so now we're going to jump into the really difficult part, and this is where this is where I started as I was trying to sort through things, I was like, man, uh, this space is so complicated. Um, all right, so authoring and publishing tools. oh, where am I where's my little clicker? Let me see what happened here. Now oh, there we go there there are this is my attempt to. Uh, do an Aristotelian classification on the <laughs> vast sort of <laughs> <laughs> landscape. There are four categories of tools. There's static site generators, hosting and deployment options, headless content management systems. Thank you to Jessica for that. Tools to render open API specs. Okay, and again, I'm not diving too deep into the, wh- how you create that spec, but assuming that you have one, that you've used to describe your API, how do you how do you render that into documentation? Uh, all right, so let's jump into the first one: static site generators. Common ones are Jekyll, Hugo, Sphinx, Sphinx, and about three hundred and fifty more. Um, yeah. But even though there are so many, I mean, there's one called Frog. There's like uh, tons of others. Um, they're only only probably the top. Ten are ones you would normally see. Jekyll is the most popular, but in part that's because it's been around probably uh, the longest or one of the longest. Started out with um, Tom Preston-Werner, one of the co-founders of GitHub. He was using a content management system and he said, "You know what? I hate the, this, you know, clunky thing. That's it's got all these these different components and plugins, and it's way too complex. All I need is." Know, something much more lightweight and I'm a developer so I'm gonna create my own tool and he created Jekyll as one of the first sort of static site generators that would implement this new uh, building and publishing process for a website that would largely replace the content management um, option so here's a little bit about how static site generators differ from the other tools if, you've used, if you have used WordPress which is like powering a third of the internet. Um, you log in to, a, to an interface, and when you type and save content, it gets saved in a database, and when you publish that page, um, the, the content stays in the database. When a user goes to a page, there are calls that say, oh, hey, let me go get this content from the database, grab it, pull it, and dynamically insert it into the page. Static site gener- generators say, that is such a waste of time. Why don't we just build all the content in the page right then? We'll put all the content in there, build the whole HTML page. When a user comes to it, it's there. So it, it, it speeds it up a lot. Um, usually, the, the pages load, You know, of course, it depends on how you've coded your theme, but they load in half a second versus like two plus seconds with a CMS. Um, a lot of people just got tired of of these bloated CMSs that tried to do everything that were just getting larger and larger, uh, and, and these static site generators pretty much don't have a database backend. The files are are flat files. They're stored in a version control repository, and it's a much lighter weight solution. Now, um, Jekyll is probably one of the oldest, but Hugo is is kind of Gaining in popularity because it's much, much faster. Jekyll is built on, or it's based on Ruby. Hugo is based on Go or Golang, um, which is a programming language invented by somebody at Google. And it's fast. If you have a Jekyll site with 3,000 pages, it might take you five minutes to build it or less. Takes my, I have about 2,500 pages on my blog, which is built with Jekyll, and it takes about four minutes to build. Of course, a lot of that build happens on the server, so I never really see, I never really care. I check back in a few minutes. Um, but Hugo, Hugo can build that same site in like half a second. So uh, it, it's much more efficient, and that, that decision becomes much more important when you start to think about your content architecture. Let's say you have 20 different products. You know, are they going to live in one big repo or lots of little different repos? Chances are they'll live in one big repo because of all the other work to hook that into a, a publishing pipeline. And if you've got those thousands of pages, you want it to build fast. So, so speed, in terms of like how fast the site compiles and builds, is a huge characteristic. But since you build from the server, not, not a deal breaker. And there are workarounds to, to get around that. Um, now Sphinx is also a super popular tool. But if you look at staticgen.com which indexes all these, you know, hundreds of static site generators. You'll find that Sphinx uh, is like 20 down. Uh, you, you see Jekyll, most popular, Hugo second most popular, Gatsby and like WinterSmith and all these others and then you finally get to Sphinx and then you get to a lot more. But Sphinx is is primarily designed as a documentation tool. So it's got features built into it that will, 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 will you will be thankful for. It's got search built into it. You can generate a PDF or EPUB. It's got uh, RST or restructured text that allows you to implement more semantics. Like let's say you wanted a, a warning, uh, right? In Markdown there's no warning element. You can do that in Sphinx. Um, it was It was designed to document the, pro- the Python programming language. So it's based on Python and you can you know, it's got some features to document Python classes if you want. But uh, because it's based on Python, um, that programming language tends to be really helpful when you're writing your own scripts to do validation checking or something else. So it's very popular and we'll see later that it plugs directly into Read the Docs, which uh, can be helpful. OK, questions, comments, static site generators. Um, all right, let's jump into category number two in the tool space, hosting and deployment options. So there's not really a good term to describe this category of tools. It's not just web hosting. You can, you can get web hosting from Bluehost for 3 bucks a month. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about platforms that have been developed to integrate with static site generators to take your commits to a re- repository and build your output deploy it, uh, give you like SSL, or minification, or authentication, or CDNs, and other kind of fancy stuff, and um, you know, scale it in a much more uh, efficient way. Here are some common ones, there, there are lots. Um, GitHub Pages, built right into GitHub, allows you to, uh, it will build your Jekyll site, so if you've got Let's say you're working on your open source project in GitHub. And you've got your docs in a Jekyll project. Well, you just go into the settings in, in your GitHub repository, say, yeah, this is a Jekyll site. Build it. You check it in, and it's going to automatically build it, and, and you're done. This is how I have my, my site set up, my, my blog and my API doc site, because it's super easy. And it integrates into GitHub if you're already using it. It's kind of a nice, nice complement. Some others, one is called Cloud Canon. This one specializes in Jekyll sites, and it's got a lot of features that are relevant to documentation, like authentication. Uh, you, wanna, you wanna password protect your content? You know That's actually quite a difficult thing. Um, or if you want to, uh, I don't, won't go into all the other details, but basically um, it, it's robust and built around Jekyll. Um, now with, with these solutions, you're not necessarily uploading your content into their platform you're just pointing to a github repository or a bitbucket repository and it's reading your content there so it's kind of an interesting thing it's it's sort of this uh, uh, interface that sits on the web but your content lives in github and it's just kind of it, it will pull it in every time you push to it so it, it seems like it's there but it's not read the docs uh, this is you know, if if you know the the history of Write the Docs, started by Eric Holscher, he he saw that there was this need to help people publish their content, especially developers, and there wasn't a lot of tooling. So he started to work on the solution that would auto build Sphinx projects from the server. And in this platform, Read the Docs, there's a commercial version and a free version. dot um, org and com, and it is it is the largest open source uh, doc project site in the world. It's got like 50,000 projects, it's got millions of page views. I didn't realize this until I was looking into his metrics. Um, So it's super popular, and if you have a Sphinx static site generator, it integrates nicely into that. Um, You don't have to write in restructured text. You can write in Markdown, but then you kind of miss out on some of the semantic features. Uh, but it's a it's a cool platform, and it's kind of nice that it provides the free model, and then if you want to ramp up more of the commercial tools. Uh, Netlify is another one. Uh, this one is we've got Jessica here who works there, and this is this is a cool platform because it doesn't say we're only going to process Jekyll or we're only going to work with Sphinx. No, you work with any static site generator. Um, and it, it adds all of these hosting and deployment features uh, that you want to build from the server with continuous deployment. And, and it will you know push your site out to lots of different places with the, the content delivery network model, so it's, it delivers it faster, and, and other features. Um, and Aerobatic is another one. Uh, now, I've only used GitHub pages, to be honest. I've tinkered around with some of the others, so I don't know all the details. but these are the main ones in this category. Yes. So what, what would be
0: the reason maybe to uh, or not to use a Apache web host? In static system style? So
1: the reason you wouldn't just want a regular web host is because you want something that's gonna build your project from the server, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean they do more than that, but this is the core value I see, is that it's going to build it. Where, Maybe you could build that logic into Apache web host You're, if you've got engineering you know, resources and talent, but um, it tends to be more of an engineer job. Um, yeah, and there's lots of other options. In the back. Is it fair to describe these hosting the options as static generation as a service? Is there a the Should you call it static generation as a service? Yeah, well, the problem, the problem with the naming is that by committing to something like, like that, they, they sort of limit what the platform does, so they want to keep it broad and vague.
0: Maybe there's a better term.
1: Um, Jessica was saying that, that there's been lots of discussions. What exactly do you name it?
0: Everything to everybody. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Phil. Yeah, uh,
0: a lot of these Services and solutions seem to be outward-facing, open source. Yeah. Uh, would any of these be appropriate, or do they have solutions for inward-facing proprietary APIs, or maybe a hybrid model of uh, proprietary API that you might want to expose sections of?
1: Um, that actually brings up a huge problem okay. with with these models. No, no. The, your question, you know, how, how do you how do you handle private proprietary content? Uh, y- a lot of these situations, well, a lot of our workflow is that we work on Doc that hasn't been released, right? Because the, the feature hasn't been released. you can't just like, keep that content in a public repository and be like, "Oh, nobody's <laughs> going to find this." Um, so what usually happens is that, well, some of these, I'm sure some of these, can, these platforms can read private repos, I'm sure. Um, and that's probably the reason to, to use some of these instead of like the default GitHub pages which I'm not sure if it reads a private repo or not. Um, yeah, they, maybe they do. But some of these others would, would offer more authentication and authorization and, and stuff, and that's why you would scale up to them. But um, even so, you sort of, uh, by, by naming a source for your content outside of your company, that can be a, a rough road to get permission for. So a lot of times companies build their own thing internally, and I'll jump more into that um, later. Um, yeah.
0: Part of what you can do, though, is you can roll out stuff from development into production through GitHub. Well, not through using GitHub, but through using Git. In other words, you can keep everything private within your own local repositories until you're ready to publish
1: yeah. it. Yeah, keep it in a private branch. Hope that you don't drop your computer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, just kidding. No, no. <laughs> yeah. You got no, yeah, it, and this is where or the git workflows on a basis, Yeah. Is. No. Um, yeah, at a remote and the, you know I, I I struggled with this trying to define the workflow. I wanted to like put I wanted to keep all my docs in an internal git and when publishing them put them in an external repo. But every time I did that there were some internal config files that would get pushed there and I'd get pinged by security and they would say, "Take those out." And I was like, "How do I do this?" Uh, so <laughs> I, I gave up, anyway. All right, third category, the headless CMS. What do I mean by headless? So remember remember what we said about content management systems that had this you know, database layer, and you log into your WordPress site, and it's got kind of the, the GUI where you write your post right there? Well, a headless CMS is sort of like this uh, client side, uh, just in the browser um, interface that's not necessarily tightly coupled with that database and this heavy back end. Um, It sort of communicates with a database through an API, so it's decoupled and that head is sort of severed. At least that's how I understand it. At any rate, forestry, Netlify CMS, uh, maybe README I.O., I'm actually not sure. Um, uh, They're they're not your traditional CMS, because they're not going to store, well okay, I probably shouldn't have put README I.O. there because I'm I'm really not sure if it qualifies. with these others, you store your content in a Git repository. It reads it, but it gives you a nice interface to it. If you don't want to work in your, your text editor and have that kind of techie code view, um, this gives you kind of that same experience like a content management system where you can browse visually. Um, with the Netlify CMS, they, they sort of wrap around any, almost any static site generator you have, and you can and this is an important part, point, let's say you have that intro blurb field. You know, um, you don't want to rely on your authors to always write the intro blurb in a consistent way in the front matter. Maybe they capitalize it or camel case it and then it screws everything up. You can map different fields to kind of forms in your, in your CMS and provide more of a, a standard way to approach it. By and large, though, I think the, the CMS interface is to try to uh, make the experience much more authorable for non-technical users. Um, when I'm writing just a blog post, um, regularly people who look over my shoulder, whether it's my kids, somebody in the airplane, um, they're like, whoa, are you programming? You know, some guy <laughs> in the airplane was like, well, I've never seen anybody program in real time. I'm like, dude, I'm writing a blog post in Markdown. You know, <laughs> It was crazy. Um, so, so it can be kind of intimidating, and, and this abstracts that complexity away.
0: Um, like, you don't use a Markdown editor? Like no. A markdown editor?
1: <laughs> nah. I mean, that's the point of Markdown, is that you shouldn't need an editor. It should just be visible, human readable in the code. So the reason I, I, I called out these uh, headless CMS categories is because it's usually on a platform that sort of does both the static site generator and the deployment in one. And that's what the IO tool does. You, uh, you don't have to, you don't have like this static site generator on your... On your local machine and some deployment host and deployment service it's just it does the same thing all in a web-based interface fourth category of tools the open tools to render the open API spec and here's where um, here's where I would probably jump into lots of demos as you can see I sort of planned but looking at you know we got like 12 minutes (laughs) and I think this is gonna get difficult so I'll just talk through some of these. Um, Let me just start off real quick. Have you heard of the OpenAPI specification? Raise your hands. All right, have you heard of Swagger? All right, so like most of the people are familiar with this. Um, When you describe your API, you often follow this OpenAPI standard. Um, It's sort of, think of it like DITA. DITA has a specific schema that it uses to describe help content with, tags that have certain names and a certain hierarchy and order and when you do that tools can read it and parse it and create cool documentation right yeah, that's kind of like half the reason to even use it well in the API doc world we have a similar schema to describe the different components of the APIs and it's called the open api specification and when you write to that it's in a predictable way that programmers can parse and, and do cool things with so you have a whole different category of tools that are specifically designed to read the Open API spec or other specs. There's one called RAML, there's one called API Blueprint. Um, and create interactive documentation. Interactive meaning lots of try it out uh, features. So you make a request, you know, type in your parameter, see what response you get back. Um, the free one is called Swagger UI. It's an open source github project and you basically just download it you you uh, change the default swagger or default open API spec file to your own you open it in a browser and voila it looks cool um, you the the sample pet store one shows collapsible sections and you can open it up um, they have a commercial version so all of the all of these when, when you talk about Swagger, it usually refers to tooling. They've, they've sort of tried to change how these terms are used. The commercial version of Swagger UI is called Swagger Hub. Uh, because let's say that you you think, oh, this is neat. You've got this tool that can read the, the spec. But now I want to collaborate with a developer. And I want to make some inline comments. And I want to have multiple versions. And I want to uh, have it shared and hosted. Well, that's where the commercial version comes in. And Swagger Hub does that. I mean, if you think about it, when you're writing documentation, you really want to collaborate with engineers. You want to have a way for them to comment. You don't want to just say, here engineers, you, you know, annotate your source code and you can write the docs. No, you want to you have control and this gives you that collaborative sort of uh, element. Readme.io is probably one of the most interesting tools. It allows you to import, a, uh, uh, import an open API spec uh, so you can create your normal documentation using you know simple tools to create new pages and add titles and, and code blocks and stuff. but then you can um, just upload your swagger or sorry your open API spec and it will it will kind of populate the site with that for your reference docs, but your other docs can can mix in. Um, if you don't, have the open API spec, it also gives you forms to just sort of fill out. What's your parameters? What's the endpoint name? And, and it will format it. Um, when I look back at all the time that I've spent kind of tinkering with tools and trying to set up my theme and figure out the way to, to parse through different things, I think a solution like ReadMe would be really uh, time efficient. Um, people kind of underestimate the amount of time you can sink into these tools. Another one is called Spectacle. Uh, this is another, another uh, uh, project somebody made that will just read your API content. We'll show it in the three column pane, which uh, Stripe made famous. Stoplight.io is a new, a new one that I, hadn't, I wasn't that familiar with before, but um, they're, they're similar to ReadMe.io. Um, they will read your open API spec. But what's cool about Stoplight is that, um, Rather than just uploading your Open API spec, it gives you an easy interface to create it. You know, you click Add Parameter, and it's like it pops up with a little modal that lets you populate the parameter, and then it builds out this specification. Because, trust me, uh, creating a valid Open API specification is not a trivial task if you have a complex API, um, and it requires quite a bit of ramp-up time. Um, So there's quite a few tools, actually, that are trying to simplify this process of building the spec. And at first, maybe that was their goal. They're like, we're going to make it easy. We're going to give visual controls to build it. But now they've evolved and said, well, let's also host their docs and let's host their non-reference docs. So with Stoplight, you can combine the uh, reference and non-reference. A couple of others, API-Matic a quite an impressive tool. Let's you convert basically any spec to another spec. If you have Swagger 2.0, you want to convert it to RAML and back. But they also host documentation, and uh, they have a unique way of uh, of doing it. And then Restlet Studio is another one. So there's probably a dozen more of these. Um, a lot of these platforms want to they want to manage the whole like API lifecycle. You're going to design your API here. You're going to test it. You're going to write your your specification file. You're gonna do other kind of mock servers and stuff, and it's got this whole like platform for it. And there's lots of these. Yeah. How is redock How is Redoc? Redoc. Uh, I I'm trying to remember exactly. I don't know all the details. Is that is that so a static site step, generator? Or like what? Has oh, okay. Inheritance and polymorphism, like you okay. I'm not that familiar with Redoc. That would be a good one to to add to this list. So thanks, I'll I'll check it out. How do you spell it?
0: R-E-D-O-C.
1: Okay, R-E-D-O-C. All right, Um, so integration challenges. This is the biggest gap right now. You've got your reference docs, often auto-generated from the OpenAPI, and then you've got your non-reference docs. And trying to combine them is really difficult. If you've got a static site generator like Jekyll, Hugo, Sphinx, you know, you, you don't have a lot of options to just take that output from the open API, the, the generated doc, and, and put it in there. You can embed it, and it, and it kind of works, but it looks like a site embedded in another site. Um, but some of these platforms that I mentioned, README, Stoplight, they're starting to integrate, but then you've got, you know, third-party services. It's not just an internal solution. So uh, generally, I think what most people do is they have their non-reference tutorials conceptual content in one site and they link out to the reference which you know follows the pattern that has been around for, since Javadoc where you have a separate output for your reference documentation so you know developers aren't up in arms and say well, why don't i have one seamless site where everything just fits perfectly together in a branded cohesive way but that's more the business side okay so which tool i only have 4 minutes left but which tools should you use? Um, I actually have a, a page on my my site that tries to guide you through this process, but you start out by trying to define your requirements, which sounds simple until you want the whole world, and you're like, oh, of course I want PDF, of course I want translation, of course I want great search, of course I want this, you know, it's like, well, you're not gonna get all that. <laughs> Choose your priorities, you know, is, is PDF really important, or is it like a customizable web more important, or is it more important that you don't have to do the code part uh, with the theme. You know, do you want the control? Do you not want the control? Consider the amount of the amount of time you're going to spend. Do you want to spend a quarter of your time on tools? Because if you're the tools person and you're in charge of this workflow, that's at least how much time you will spend. Uh, especially if you you start to customize your own theme and then you're responsible for other feature requests and you have bugs and issues, you suddenly have to, uh, you know, sink time into learning css and html and javascript in more advanced ways Um, and then hope that after this implementation you know maybe you've got custom build scripts on the server that run with a certain tool hopefully you you chose something well because because it's really hard to undo once you've got custom scripts and and processes you know it's not easy to just jump onto another solution all right in this last section i'm going to go over some lessons learned (laughs) Mm Um, And it looks more negative than it is, really. (laughs) My current setup, this is what we implemented in in my Amazon dot group, which is, uh, we focus on the App Store. Uh, We have a a Jekyll, and this is mostly because I wanted Jekyll and was familiar with it, right? Um, (laughs) We have a Jekyll theme, but it doesn't have a header or footer because uh, we want to kind of, well, we want it to be seamlessly branded with the other parts of the site. we have an internal Git infrastructure, because again, we have a lot of internal content, can't be you know, out in the open before feature's released. And we had the engineering team that supports the site build out a publishing pipeline that piggybacks on the existing workflow in- infrastructure. As Joe said, you know, uh, developers have build pipelines. They have, they have continuous deployment uh, kind of uh, an infrastructure for doing that, and they just sort of plugged in with the same. Now here they, they they had a complexity where they wanted to take and build the site and then pull the HTML into AWS S3 and then like match server requests with those keys and dynamically insert it into the template that would have the header and footer and uh, you know it actually works great it looks good um, it, I always thought that it was way more complex than uh, than it needed to be. But uh, when you have engineers build systems for you internally, they probably look like this. Kind of like, whoa, why are we doing all this? Um, but the engineers, they understand the infrastructure. They understand the workflow. They probably don't understand the static, static site generator component as well. But they uh, they know how to kind of navigate through the internal processes. So if you're forced in the internal, you can't use an external host to do your deployment and all that. Um, y- that's what you might end up with a solution that seems more complex. Overall, my experience in switching to this model, I, I mostly love it. I would not go back. I think that continuous deployment is the killer feature, uh, as well as managing content with Git. Um, I love the control, the flexibility to do whatever I want with my static site generator. I recently added like some navigation maps, and I love the, the ability to just do that. Um, It does take a lot more time than than one would expect, and there's still some pain points with search, translation, PDF, they're not easy to solve. I end up with hacky workarounds. Uh, I'm gonna skip this part. Um, This is my last slide here. This is sort of what I know. It's a confusing landscape. There are a lot of different tools and categories of tools and processes, but here's what what I sort of have settled on as, yes, I'm confident I can say this. I think it's a good practice to describe your REST APIs when you document them using the OpenAPI specification. It's just crazy to me that people would you know, just decide whatever way they want to do it. Uh, we need standards around that so that we can you know, have predictable and interactive documentation from it. Um, building continuously from the server is definitely something you, you want to, to have in there. It will make your life much easier, much simpler. Um, you can focus on the content. Managing content with Git. Another huge benefit: um, the more you work with it, you, you learn the Git commands that that you need to know, and uh, it can make your life simple. Um, if you can use third-party solutions, do it, because you you don't want to spend all your time learning the ins and outs of some tool and trying to, you know, build your own pipeline and so forth. You can spend an infinity in the rabbit hole of tools, and you generally just have to weigh the trade-off. You know, is it really important? to have control and flexibility to customize my solution to exactly what I want, or would I rather just kind of offload that to a third party um, and accept that I'm not gonna have as much control, but I won't have the responsibility for maintaining a server and making sure the code doesn't have bugs and just sort of uh, making the, ex- the experience um, <clears throat> viable and workable. It- it's a trade-off. Um, if you go with a solution like README, you're going to complain that oh it doesn't do this certain thing, but then you don't have to maintain the server and the build workflow either. All right, um, that is the end of presentation here. Questions? Uh, I'll give people a couple minutes for questions, and then I'll take questions afterwards. But uh, any any topics or feedback comments you want to chime in on? Yeah. Wait wait behind you behind you. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, so I've just finished going through your API uh, course on your website. Thanks. Thank you. It's very detailed. Oh, thanks. Excellent excellent body of information. And so I I understand that you can use, I guess, CodeGen to generate the OpenAPI spec from the API itself from the server side, Or you as a writer can write the open API and have the developers implement that and yeah. have that as a contract. I don't want to do that, but I also want to know if there's an automatic way that if changes happen on the actual implementation, it would notify, like if a new mm-hmm. API is added, a new endpoint is added. Is there some so you're, kind of you, you you Okay, so you're saying, uh yeah. There's two ways to generate that specification document. People can annotate the code with special annotations, use this code gen library, and it renders out the spec that then you can you know, feed into these other tools. And the main argument there is reduced documentation drift. Right? Uh, we can hopefully not have uh, parameters we missed and so forth. Is there any way to auto notify when you manually create it? I don't think so. Um, maybe, but I don't know of any way. Um, the trend now is to manually create it actually, uh, even though a lot of developers don't wanna do that if maybe they're the primary authors and they work on the code all day and it makes sense. But um, for tech writers, you may not have access to the code or you may not, maybe your developers uh, don't speak English very well and they don't even really wanna be in the business of kind of maintaining that. Um, so the, the current best practice is to use the spec document as a blueprint, as a contract that developers have to write to whether they do or not uh there's nothing to enforce that there's nothing to kind of do a two-way communication sync between the two that i know but maybe maybe it's available on one of these platforms um one of these more comprehensive you know platforms that manages the whole life cycle perhaps i'm not i'm not really sure all right yes
0: JSON files can be like very huge and it could be very nested so what's your recommendation or you know how to document you know parameters
1: how do you document the json response that is a that is a great question um <laughs> because you're absolutely right like the APIs are so big, it yeah you like could the have multiple system. levels of nesting repeated elements mm-hmm um and how do you how do you do that you know the the standard approach is i'm just going to do a table and i'll just define them here and there and you are like oh maybe i'll do an extra row for the nested part and then i've got another nested wait i already repeated this (laughs) so different people have approached it in different ways um some people uh well the, the the proper way to do it in my opinion is to describe Describe it using the open API specification syntax Uh, And and that will feed into the JSON schema the the open API doesn't try to like um, Tell you how to describe all the JSON because it's already documented in something called JSON schema Um, So if you describe it there you then when you do Let me just give an example of this really quick Um, oh my timer telling me to stretch. Um, when, <laughs> when you do, uh, then sorry. When you document it using the specification, maybe I'll just come back to that. Then Swagger UI or whatever tool you have is going to describe each of those um, each of the responses in a cool way. The, currently, the Swagger UI will give you kind of like a sample, a sample response value, and below that it will describe that value. So you can see it in the exact structure. Um, And, yeah, let me just go to that real quick, if I can figure out, uh, here we go. Okay, uh, Swagger UI demo. Oh, okay. So here I've actually embedded the Swagger UI output right in my page. And it looks like a website embedded in a website. Right, but it's got all the functionality here. You expand it, you try it out, and so forth. You can do requests, um, but here this part that's actually going to describe the response sort of doesn't fit in there. You'd have to you'd have to override it with CSS. It's, it turns out to be more complicated than it looks. So most people just um, have it as a standalone file, and here the liquid layout works a lot better. But if uh, this get weather data, okay, so this is Don't worry about this model section, I don't know why they put it in there. Um, Get weather data has a response that's huge. See this example value? It's got a lot of nesting and it's kind of like the sort of sample response that's sort of beastly. They let you switch into the model, as they call it. And, oops, (laughs) oh man, I screwed something up. Sorry. Oh, that was on Climax. OK, well, I think they have it down here. It's going to look like this, where you've got uh, each element described. You've got an example um, and then the definition. So it's sort of, uh, ideally, I would have shown it. It would show the same structure as the response. It would look like this. So that's one way. And uh, I wouldn't try to you know rack your brain trying to figure out a creative format to do that. Just describe it with the, the spec and let it let the Swagger UI tools display it like they do, and people will, will figure it out. Or you could do a custom thing. It's just All right, any other questions? We're kind of at the end. So let me just remind you where you can uh, find more information. You go to my site, um, I'd rather be writing.com. I've got an API doc link right there. And this is where the course is. And the publishing API section we went over is right here. You can sort of dive more deeply into that. So thank you.